You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Well, with all the snow this past week, it's got me dreaming about summertime and the beach. My family plans to go to the beach uh, this summer. And I want to start, just, I just want to let it be known that the beaches in North Carolina are better than the beaches in Texas. I... I, uh, I grew up about an hour and a half from the coast in North Carolina, and my family would vacation at the beach every, every year, every summer. And so I want to admit that I may be a little bit biased here, okay? But I have been to the beach in Texas once, and it was a, a terrible experience. It was a few years ago, Melissa and I took our older kids to visit some family friends in Austin, and there was one day we decided to drive down uh, to the beach, and uh, we was a little overcast, a little windy, uh, but the kids really wanted to swim, and, and it just so happened that the beach was not crowded at all that day, and so we get out there, and you can, of course, drive your vehicle on the beach, which is gross, but we did that. And, and the kids just, they go running into the water and they're splashing around and they're having a great time. And then after a little while, they come, they come running out of the water, come running up to us and, and they, they were saying, it, it, it's stinging, it, it's itching. They were, they were screaming, get it off, get it off, get it off. And, and we didn't see anything right away. We didn't know what they were talking about, but we looked at them a little bit closer and we noticed that there were these little almost translucent bugs all over them, in their bathing suit, everywhere. And then we looked up, looked around, we noticed that about every 30 yards or so, there were these purple flags out. And we were like, I wonder what these purple flags mean. And so we Google it and come to find out the purple flags mean dangerous marine life has been spotted. And so then we walk over to the water and we try to get a closer look. And I'm not kidding you, I saw more jellyfish than I'd ever seen in my entire life. They were everywhere. Now, I, I, um, I've been to the beach a lot. Again, I've, I've, I've seen jellyfish before, but not so many at, in one place. We come, come to find out later, we read and heard that these, the little bugs that were on our kids was actually jellyfish larva. It's called sea lice, okay? I have, I have gone, my entire life, I've gone to the beach in North Carolina, never heard of sea lice. I go to the beach one time in Texas, my kids get sea lice, it was a mess. And so I, I conclude North Carolina beaches are better than Texas beaches. But here, here's the thing, as much as I wanna blame, blame it on Texas, Rigney's, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm joking. As much as I wanna blame it on the Gulf of Mexico or whatever else I might blame it on, the whole thing was really my fault. It's my fault. Because the purple flags were out. The purple flags were everywhere. The purple flags were just flapping in the wind. They were right in front of me and I ignored them. And typically, just as a general rule, when we ignore warnings, bad things happen. 
the warnings are there for a reason. And that's certainly the case in Hebrews chapter 3. Verses 7 to 11 here, after we read the quotation from Psalm 95, we see in verses 12 to 19 a very clear warning. This is a flag I want us to see. My objective in the sermon is just to make sure we don't ignore this. I want to look at this passage in two parts. I want to answer two questions. Number one, what is the basis of the warning? Number two, what is the heart of the warning? Those are the two questions. Let's pray and we'll dig in. Father, we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, please open the eyes of our hearts to behold wonderful things in your word. Your Holy Spirit is our only hope in this moment. Accomplish your will in us, we ask for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Here's the question. What is the basis of the warning? Now, before we we start digging into these verses, I I think it's good to step back and try to get a view of this passage overall. Just kind of look at the fuller context here. We saw last week, I want to review some stuff. And I want to encourage you that as I do this, if you can, get your Bibles or your phone, and I want you to look with me at these verses. And just so you guys know, we've not, we've not mentioned these a ton, but we have several of these hard copy Bibles at the, the table here and the table back there. And these are yours to take. If we run out, we actually have more. And so um, if you don't have a, a hard copy Bible, um, we want you to take one of these and you can keep it. Um, and you can so grab those now, look at your phone or look with your neighbor. But I, I want you to look at these verses and really see for yourself what's being said here. So with your Bible, your phone, or you're looking at your neighbor, neighbor's deal. Okay, verse 7 here. Look at verse 7, okay? Verse 7 down to verse 11 is a quotation. You can see the way it's probably indented that it's a quotation. Pastor Joe last week, he helped us out by explaining that this quotation is is from Psalm 95. And Psalm 95 is actually referring to an event that happened early in Israel's history in the book of Numbers. And just the short summary of that story in Numbers is that the people of Israel failed to trust Yahweh, even after everything they had seen him do. They, they did not trust the word of God. Instead, they rebelled against God. And as a judgment on them, God said that he would kill them all. And he did. The only exception was Joshua and Caleb because they had faith. Every other person above the age of 20 who grumbled against God, God put them to death in the wilderness over the course of 40 years. It's a lot of people, a lot of numbers. That's why the book's called Numbers. That's the story that Psalm 95 is referring to. The story is a cautionary tale of unbelief and judgment. And so Psalm 95, the psalmist writes Psalm 95, looking back on that story with some lessons for us. And then the writer of Hebrews looks back on Psalm 95, which is looking back on Numbers, and he's repeating that lesson, and the lesson is a warning. After Psalm 95 is quoted here in verse 12, I want you to see the warning. This is verse 12, after the quotation, verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Everybody see that warning? You see the flag there in verse 12? Just I want to 
Hands up. Give me, a, give me a hand here. Okay, we see it. I just want you to see it. Verse 12, you see the warning. Now, the way the passage is organized is that the, the writer gives the, the warning first in verses 12 to 13, and then he gives the rationale for the warning in verses 14 to 19. But what I'd like to do this morning as, as, we, as I explain the passage is I want to switch that around a little bit, okay? I want to start by looking at the rationale, the basis of the warning. That's the bottom verses there, 14 to 19. And then we're going to come, after that, we're going to come back up to the top and look closer at the warning itself. But when it comes to the basis of the warning, it has to do with the possibility of danger. That's the case for any kind of warning. Warnings, ex- warnings exist because there is some danger that we want to avoid, like jellyfish and jellyfish larvae, right? We don't want that. The, the, the warning is there so that we would uh, not suffer the danger that it's trying to tell us about. And, and usually that's for our good, which means we should maybe rethink how we hear the word warning. I, I, warnings are expressions of kindness. I don't know that we, we typically think that way. I, I think my guess would be that for a lot of us, the word, the, the word warning itself sounds negative. It sounds uncomfortable. Warnings is the sort of thing that we don't get excited about. Uh, excited about. And um, I, I, I want to just, I want to challenge that. And I don't want to encourage you that warnings are actually extremely important. And we need warnings to live in this world because we live in a world of real danger. And the real spiritual danger is, is the issue in Hebrews. That's why this warning is here. The, the spiritual, the real spiritual danger that we should avoid is the danger of apostasy. And that's something that we talked about several weeks ago when we uh, opened up and began here our series in Hebrews. Remember that one of the problems that these early Christians were facing, one of the, the main things that occasioned this letter was the threat of apostasy. It's that people have and people do fall away from faith. And, and there are some important nuances and details relate, re- related to that that we talked about in the first sermon. But at least on the surface, we know people walk away from Jesus. People abandon Jesus. And that's a problem. That's dangerous. And the reason it's dangerous is because if you forsake faith in Jesus, you will not be saved by Jesus. And and we see that basic point repeated here three times. The first is in verse six. Look at verse six. This is what leads into the quote, from Psalm 95, Hebrews 3, verse 6. And we are his house, God's house. We are God's house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Second, we see the same point repeated in verse 14. Look at verse 14. We saw verse 6, now verse 14. For we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So you can see there, verse 14 repeats verse 6. The, the, the same conditional conjunction is used, that word if, and the same word for hold or hold fast 
is used. You see the repetitions in those verses? Verse 6, if indeed we hold fast our confidence. Verse 14, if indeed we hold our original confidence. It's the same idea. And now, because that's the same idea, we can see that being God's house in verse 6 and sharing in Christ in verse 14 are also the same idea. They are both ways of describing God's salvation. It means that we are God's people. We are truly Christians. We are united to Jesus and we are co-heirs of his benefits. That is who we are if we keep on believing in Jesus. The message is that we are saved by Jesus if we keep clinging to Jesus by faith, but the danger apparently is that it's possible that we might stop clinging to Jesus by faith. It's possible that some might forsake Jesus. And to make this point, the writer repeats Psalm 95. He brings it in again. Now, Psalm 95 was already quoted in verses 7 to 11. We saw that. But then in verse 15, The writer of Hebrews, he quotes from Psalm 95 again. After he repeats the conditional point in verse 14, that we're saved by Jesus if we keep clinging to Jesus, verse 15 starts like this, as it is said, Psalm 95 again. See that? In verse 15, he goes back to Psalm 95. The writer of Hebrews is saying basically, hey, we're saved by Jesus if we keep clinging to Jesus just like we learned from Psalm 95. Now, how exactly have we learned this from Psalm 95? Well, in Psalm 95, we've learned at the very least that you can be so close to the salvation of God and yet still not be saved because you do not believe. That's the point the writer of Hebrews drives home in a string of questions from verses 16 to 18. You guys look at those questions from verses 16 to 18. There are five questions here in a row that are making three conclusions. You guys ever played that game questions before? You guys know the game questions? It's a great road trip game. It's like if you, it's, it's a game where you try to have a conversation with someone, but you can only use questions back and forth with each other. Just for example, say, say Pastor Kenny and I are on a road trip and we're going to play this game, questions. And I said, Kenny, is Sunday the best day of the week? Kenny would say, is the Pope Catholic? And then I'd say, did the Chiefs win the Super Bowl? And... and <laughs> And we would keep, too, is, it too, is it too soon? <laughs> too, sorry. We would, we, would, we would keep, I got something for you after this church. We keep, the, the idea is that you keep asking questions back and forth, right? I said, well, okay, you, you get the game. That was too much. That's what's happening here, okay? There's a, there's a questions, one after, there are five questions, but two of the questions are rhetorical questions that answer the previous questions. Let me show you this. Look, look with me, verse 16. Question one, verse 16a. Speaking of Psalm 95, the question is, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? That is, who were the ones in this story of Israel who heard the word of God and rebelled against him? Okay, rhetorical question number one, verse 16b. 
He comes back and says, was it not all those who, who left Egypt led by Moses? That's an affirmation. So he, he, the, the, the two questions in verse 16 are together saying, those who heard the word of God and rebelled against him were all those who Moses led out of Egypt and saw what God did. That's what we're talking about. Question two, verse 17a. And with whom was he, God, provoked for 40 years? That's a question. He's saying, who were the ones in the story with whom God was angry and punished for 40 years in the wilderness? Rhetorical question two. This is verse 17b. He follows that up. Was it not those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Again, that's an affirmation. Both questions together in verse 17 are saying, those with whom God was angry were those who did not trust God and therefore they died in the wilderness. Rhetorical question three, verses verse 18. And to whom did God swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? This is a rhetorical question affirming that those who do not believe, the unbelieving, the disobedient, they do not enter God's rest. They do not inherit God's promised salvation. So altogether, if we look at these questions, the writer of Hebrews is saying, hey, keep clinging to Jesus because we know the story of numbers. We get the lesson that's been distilled for us in Psalm 95. It's that those who, who don't believe are not saved, even if they're so close to God's salvation that they have seen it for themselves. If they don't believe, they don't enter God's rest. And that's the summary, he says in verse 19. Look at verse 19. He summarizes the questions. He says, so we see through Psalm 95 that they were unable to enter because of unbelief and entering God's rest here in verse 19 is analogous to being God's house in verse 6 and sharing in Christ in verse 14. So, Entering God's rest, being God's house, sharing in Christ. They are all describing God's salvation. The logic of the passage is saying that those who do not believe do not enter God's rest, do not share in Christ. They are not God's house. If you do not believe in Jesus, you will not be saved by Jesus. And unbelief is a danger. That's what he's saying. Verses 14 to 19 give us the basis of the warning. That's why the warning exists, because of verses 14 to 19. These verses are the reason that when we start at the top in verse 12, there's a big warning flag flying in our face. I want you to see verse 12 like it's just flapping, man. It's purple or whatever color. It's just there, boom, we come to the passage and it's saying, danger, watch out. I don't, I don't want us to miss this. So we've seen the basis, the rationale for the warning, verses 14 to 19. Now let's look at the heart of the warning in verse 12. The heart of the warning in verse 12, again, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. The heart of the warning is a warning about your heart. 
That's what we find here. The warning is that first commandment. It's those words, take care, take care. Now, what's interesting is that the, the, the verb there actually is the verb to see, which is actually the same Greek word used in verse 19. Everyone look, look, look back down at verse 19 for a second. See how verse 19 starts? So we see, verse 19. Well, that, that word see is the same word that starts verse 12. The passage is bookended with the exact same word because the writer of Hebrews wants us to know that this is one unit. Now, the reason that verse 12 is translated take care is because it's an imperative, it's a command. So the writer is not saying, he's not saying simply, see brothers. He's saying, watch out. Anytime this verb is in the imperative form, it takes on that kind of force. He, he's saying, look out, watch out, take care. It's a warning. It's a warning. It's what he's doing here. And the warning is about what? Watch out, brothers. Look out, brothers. Take care, brothers and sisters. Aldelfoy, brothers and sisters. Lest there be, lest there be. Now the writer of Hebrews, he's going to give us the purpose for why we should watch out. There is a negative reality we should beware. There's a thing that we should avoid. And it's in that phrase, lest there be. Another way to say it is watch out brothers, so that none of you have an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And it's important here that he mentions the heart. First off, when he mentions the heart, that's a callback to the quote from Psalm 95. Look back at verse 10 in this passage. The problem of unbelief in the Old Testament story was that the Israelites went astray in their hearts. That's what Psalm 95 says, quoted in verse 10. And the going astray in the heart in verse 10 is the same idea as an evil unbelieving heart in verse 12. And that results in falling away from the living God. And so by this verse alone, just by verse 12 alone, we can see that the heart is a big deal. It's the heart that leads us to fall away. And that word fall away is the word for apostatize. It means to abandon. We can see here that what, what leads people to abandon God is an unbelieving heart. By this fact alone, we could argue that the battle for the heart is a battle for eternal life and death. Verse, verse 12 says as much, but then we also have the full testimony of Scripture. What else does the Bible say about the heart? The Bible teaches us that the heart is the control center of who we are. It's the source from which we interact with the world, and Jesus taught us this. He said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He said, from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. And he stops there, but he could keep going, right? It's not an exhaustive list. All these sins, and especially the sin of unbelief, that's talked about in Hebrews 3, it comes from where? The heart. The late J.I. Packer, he writes this, the human heart is the controlling source of all that we do in expression of what we are. 
All our thoughts, desires, discernments, and decisions, our plans and purposes, our affections, attitudes, and ambitions, all the wisdom and all the folly that mark our lives come out of and are fueled, serviced, and driven by our hearts, for better or for worse. And what Packer says here lines up with what Solomon tells us in Proverbs 4, verse 23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. It's a great proverb. In the 1600s, uh, there was a Puritan named John Flavel, who in pure Puritan fashion, wrote an entire book on this one verse, okay? And in the book, because the Bible tells us that the heart is super important and it pretty much determines everything that matters. And because we know in the word of God that it's the heart that God cares most about, Flavel says this, his exhortation is this. He says, the keeping and right managing of the heart in every condition is the one great business of the Christian life. I think the writer of Hebrews would say the same thing. The the warning in this passage is focused on the heart. Watch out that your heart not become an evil, unbelieving heart. Okay, so how do we do that then? In what way exactly do we do that? How, How do we watch out? How do we take care of our hearts? I think verse 13 gets there. I think verse 13 shows us. Verse 13 gives us a second command following verse 12, and it's the same purpose we see in verse 12. Look at verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And when he says this word hardened here, he's implying the heart. So so listen to a paraphrase of, of both of these commands. Verse 12, verse 12, watch out so that your heart not become an evil, unbelieving heart. Verse 13, but exhort one another so that none of your hearts may be hardened. Do you hear that? There's a similarity in verse 12 and verse 13, but now what's the relationship between these two verses? We see that they're joined together by that word but, that conjunction but in verse 13. And most of the time when we see a conjunction, but it marks a contrast. We use it like, don't do this, but do this. It doesn't function that way here though. Verse 13 is not telling us something entirely different from verse 12. It's actually a restatement of verse 12, except verse 13 is explaining or developing verse 12 a little bit more. To be exact, verse 13, develops the command to take care and the danger of an unbelieving heart. Now, I want you to see this, okay? So let's start with the danger. An an evil, unbelieving heart in verse 12 is called a heart hardened by the deceitfulness of sin in verse 13. And I'm interested in those descriptions. I, I wanna know, is an unbelieving heart and a hardened heart describing the same condition or might one come before the other? Now, this, this passage does not answer that question conclusively, but it raises the question, okay? 
And so as we look throughout the New Testament at this word harden, it shows up a couple more times. Here, here are some, uh, some examples. Romans chapter 9, verse 18, this word harden. Romans 9, 18. So then he, God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Another place it shows up is Acts 19, 9. So this is, Luke is speaking about Paul's ministry, and he says, but when some, some of the people that Paul was preaching to, when some became stubborn, that word stubborn, same word for hardened. When some became stubborn, when some became hardened and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, Paul withdrew from them and took the disciples with him. So both of these verses have the same verb translated to harden or to become stubborn, and both of them are connected to unbelief. And the connection theologically is that this hardening of the heart is the process by which the heart becomes and stays unbelieving. That's exactly the way Luke uses it in Acts chapter 19. The stubborn or hardened heart is the heart that continues in unbelief. An unbelieving heart starts and stays unbelieving by the heart being hardened. Which means if you want to avoid an unbelieving heart, verse 12, then avoid a hardened heart, verse 13. Does that make sense to everybody? See that? See what he's saying here, how they're related? The heart that is hardened is the heart that is incapable of faith. Watch out for a hardened heart. This is obvious to us, this, the primacy of the heart and faith. This is obvious to us when we think about the promise of the new covenant. Remember that the people of Israel were faithless. The the people of Israel could not trust God. And so in order for them to believe, in order for any of us to have faith in God, God must give us what? New hearts. He has to create in us a new heart. And that is the promise of the new covenant that Moses foretold in Deuteronomy 30. It's what the prophets declared, Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. Our only hope of trusting in Jesus Christ is if God in his sovereign grace changes us right here. That's it. He has to change our hearts. Now here's the question. If it's God who must give us new hearts, how does it work that we're supposed to keep watch on our hearts? You tracking with that question? Does this mean that God gives us new hearts, but then he leaves it all up to us to take care of our hearts? How does this work? I think the second command in verse 13 helps us. It's the command to exhort. This might be the most important thing I say all year. That's how I feel about this. This might be the most important thing that I've ever said in this church. Okay, I want you to hear this part. I was blown away this week digging into this passage. Exhort one another is developing this command to watch out. 
It's the positive side of the warning. We should watch out that we don't have an unbelieving heart. And how, in what way do we watch out for our hearts? By exhorting one another. That word exhort here is important. The the original word has a range of meanings. It shows up a few different ways in the New Testament. But the meaning here in Hebrews 3, the meaning for, for this word exhort is the word encourage. It's the same word that's used, if you peek over, Hebrews 10, verse 25. Same word, encourage. The word means to encourage or to give comfort or to give consoling help. And every time it's used in this way, it's always in reference to the saving work of God. That's what biblical encouragement is. Biblical encouragement is not generic expressions of kindness. Hey, nice shoes. Love those socks. You did great on that thing that you did. Those are all great to say to each other. Those those kinds of of things are all good and and great to say to one another. We should be kind to each other. But but here, the, the command in verse 13 to exhort or to encourage, it's deeper than that. It means to speak words of comfort and help to one another about God. Remember that this encouragement, this encouragement, that we're commanded to speak to each other is the antidote to a hardened heart. What keeps the heart from being hardened? What keeps us from, uh, what keeps us from unbelief? It's remembering the truth of what God has done. It's remembering who God is. And this remembering happens through our telling one another. This is amazing. Track with this. Look, look at this. God, God is the one who by his grace gives us new hearts. God created me a new heart, a clean heart. He is the one who gives us new hearts. And we are commanded to watch out for our hearts. And that watchfulness we're commanded to is an action that God intends to happen through the means of us encouraging one another in his salvation. The creation, this is it, this is the sermon. The creation of our new hearts is the work of God. And the keeping of our new hearts is the work of God through the means of the church's life together. We have no idea the profundity of our obligations to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's mind blowing. The obligations, the commitment that we're called to have together. The way that God has designed to keep my heart is through you. And the way that God has designed to keep your hearts is through the people sitting around you. Let that sink in, just look around. Let that sink in for a second. (laughs) 
And it's really not complicated what we're called to do in this ministry of encouragement. We encourage one another by telling each other. Tell our brothers, tell our sisters, tell your brothers, tell your sister that God loves them. That's it. I want so badly for our church to be marked by this kind of encouragement. Just, man, just, we're just done with cynicism. And we want to be the kind of people and, and how we live together and how we interact with one another. We are speaking the words of life to each other. We are reminding each other of who God is and what he's done. We remind one another that God is in control and that God is good. And we assure one another that God loves us and that he is for us and that he knows what you need before you even ask it. And look, if he's going to take care of the birds of the air, he's going to take care of you. We say that to each other because we believe that and we help one another believe that. In fact, we know, we believe that God will only always wield his sovereign power for our eternal good in Christ. And as a people who believe that, let us speak that. Let us tell each other that. We are commanded to tell each other this because that is the way that God keeps us. And so we come to Hebrews 3 and we see this warning flag in verse 12. The danger applies to everyone. The danger, it gets our attention here, the warning. And then we see this command to encourage one another. And just as the danger applies for everyone, so this command to encourage applies to everyone. And that's what brings us to the table today. Every week when we come to the Lord's table, the Lord's table is the big reminder of what God has done. The bread and the cup remind us of the death of Jesus for us, the broken body of Jesus for us, the shed blood of Jesus for us. And when we take the bread and we take the cup, we are remembering Jesus together. We, we come to this table together. We eat and drink at this table together. And when we're doing that, this is what's happening in this room. We are believing together and we are encouraging each other together to hold fast to our great salvation, to keep clinging to this Jesus who has saved us. That's what we're doing at this table. And so for all who are here this morning, who do cling to Jesus, if you are here and you believe in Jesus Christ, this table is for us. The body of Jesus is the true bread. Let us serve you.